Would you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to uh, the book of Luke? We are in Luke chapter 18 this morning. We were there last week as well. Uh, Last week we looked at the first eight verses of Luke 18, and today we'll look at the next six verses, uh, next five verses, in verses 9 through 14. Six verses, that's six verses. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful on the back table back there. Feel free to stand up and go grab one. Um, And... uh, and uh, it's always good to have the words of God in front of you as, as we consider them together. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are, uh, there are copies underneath the offering uh, box and the very back table. Uh, if you need a new copy of God's Word, those are also there. Go ahead and take that with you today. It's a gift from us to you. It's important for us to be considering God's Word regularly, even as we consider it this morning together. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, and I'll read through verse 14. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector Standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who, humble, or everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, 2020 has popularized several uh, phrases for us, several terms. You've maybe seen these if you've been active on social media or just read uh, news news sites. Things like hashtag activism or cancel culture have become popular uh, terms. And of course, one that gets used and thrown around quite a bit is virtue signaling. The last one, virtue signaling, really has been around for about five years, if you're unfamiliar with the term. Uh, But again, in the last several months, it's been, it's because of what's happening in our world, on several fronts, the use has been increased substantially. Virtue signaling, again, if you're unfamiliar, is typically found on the internet, primarily social media, and usually consists of an individual uh, letting people know that he or she dislikes something in order to show his or her superior morality. It's a low-cost public statement that's intended to garner approval from other people. So, for example, someone on social media might say something like, I really hate big trucks, hoping that the people on their friends list will, who are environmentalists will give them approval. This is virtue signaling. It's erupted in popularity, like I said, being tossed around freely in 2020. But the parable that Jesus tells here intersects pretty clearly with our time. And even though that term has only been around for five-ish years, uh, we see an example of it here in this 
parable. Like many of the parables we've considered in this sermon series, the characters are really important. The characters are really important. Two characters here that Jesus talks about, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, we have some assumptions about those two people, and we'll work to break those, those down in our time. But before we get there, look at verse 9 with me as we kind of introduce the, the words that Jesus spoke. If you look at verse 9, the audience is considered here. Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted themselves, or trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Note here that Luke records that he told this to them and not about them. Jesus talks to the people whose problem is trusting in themselves that they were righteous and treating others with contempt. This is not a popular move by Jesus. It wouldn't be a popular move by any one of us. But it's one that Jesus doesn't shy away from. He speaks directly to the people and directly to their problem. And so when Luke writes that these righteous people treated others with contempt, it would be good to see that, the, the, that the, these people thought it would be good to highlight their own good works, their own righteous deeds through deriding or condescending on others. And so Jesus calls it out. He calls it out. The question then that this parable is asking, as we look at all of these verses here, the question that this parable is is asking and will ultimately answer uh, for us is, how can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? Jesus' audience, those who are trusting in themselves and their own righteousness, were trusting in something that was incorrect. This was a mistake on their part. And Jesus is offering the correction. The question, how can I be right with God, if we put it in more biblical terms, is how can I be justified before God? How can I be justified before God? Again, Jesus' audience believed that they were in fact right before God by placing their trust in their own righteousness. But the examples of the Pharisee and the tax collector actually breaks down that notion and sort of reframes the whole whole narrative for us. Because a Pharisee was someone who would be well thought of in Jesus' time. We'll talk about that in a moment. But because of the Pharisee, if the Pharisee, who is the most righteous of the righteous, which is what Jesus' hearers would have thought, If the Pharisee was the most righteous of all the righteous people in their society, and he is not the one who went home justified, which Jesus tells us at the end of the parable, how can I be right with God? I can't trust in my own righteousness. So how can I be right with God? Jesus uses the the word justified in verse 14 in his first sentence there. This is kind of his summary in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, that being the tax collector, rather than the other being the the Pharisee. And so before we move ahead, we we have to slow down on that word justified because on it hinges like our whole understanding of this parable. The word justified is incredibly important here. And we actually use this word pretty frequently. But I want to make sure that you see, that we see together, 
what's being said here. That word justified, and if we see the word righteous or righteousness elsewhere, like in verse 9, these words are actually linked together deeply. It's not apparent in the, the English text. However, it, in the, the original language, these words share the same root. They actually share the same, the same root. And so we need to see, whenever you see the word righteous and whenever you see the word justified or justification or righteousness, you have to be thinking similarly about these terms. So again, we use these words in our, in our, uh, in our speech regularly, pretty frequently. Uh, think about something like a word processor, Microsoft Word. You open up a new document, you're about to type, and, uh, and the default setting for where your cursor goes is on the left side of the page, and we say that, that it is left justified. It is left justified. The default setting, left justified, means that every new line will begin on the left side of the page after whatever the margin is set to. Every new line will begin there on the left side of the page. This is the set standard. The set standard is the left side of the page, and every line that is formatted properly in your Word document will begin on the left side of the page. And so we clear, see that the, the definition then, we could say to justify, even in this own instance, is to declare right according to a set standard. The set standard is the left side of the page, and therefore it's left justified. Uh, we ask people to justify their actions regularly in our society. If your 16-year-old misses curfew, you may stomp around the living room for a while wondering why he is 20 minutes late. But when he comes home smelling like smoke and tells you that he pulled a woman and her baby out of their burning car just a few minutes earlier, and uh, then it's corroborated by the front page of the newspaper the next morning, that information justifies his lateness. And you would actually probably applaud him for his heroics. The biblical idea of justification, what Jesus is talking about here, is no different. God sets the standard. That standard is his law. He sets the standard. Sin, which you and I actively live in, we are born into it and we choose actively, is the violation of that standard. Therefore, you and I need to be declared right according to the standard. Not The standard doesn't change. We need to be declared right according to that standard. And so we ask that question, how am I right before God? How am I justified before God? And so Jesus tells this parable with the intent of showing us how we can be right before God, <clears throat> or more clearly, that you can't trust in your own righteousness to be right before God. Now, Jesus isn't saying that it's hard to trust in your own righteousness. He's not saying that it's, impo or that it's not improbable. He is saying, though, you can't trust in it to be right before God. Something outside of you, therefore, is needed to be right before God. This is what theologians like Reformer Martin Luther would call alien righteousness, and we're not talking about extraterrestrials. We're just talking about something outside of you. What is outside of you? 
uh, that can make you right before God. We'll circle back around to that idea in a bit. But the arc of the parable itself, beginning in what Jesus says in verse 10, uh, needs, uh, follows or traces uh, two men who went out to the temple to pray. So we'll trace that arc together. Looking in verse 10, Jesus gives us the introduction here. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other the tax collector. We'll consider the Pharisee first because that's what Jesus does. Jesus considers the Pharisee first. So again, Pharisee, we need to deconstruct that a little bit before we, before we can really grasp what Jesus is saying. We, in our society, use the term Pharisee in a negative way mostly. Right? If someone's being judgy, or sort of like holier than thou, we might point our finger at them and call them a Pharisee. Like, stop being such a Pharisee. Uh, I don't want to be called a Pharisee. You don't want to be called a Pharisee. But the reality is, Jesus' example of a Pharisee is something quite different. It's something quite different. If I were to ask you the question, who is the most virtuous person you can think of, this is what would have come to mind for Jesus' hearers. This is the most virtuous, virtuous, most morally upstanding person that Jesus' hearers would have been able to think about. Uh, my mind goes to Mr. Rogers, um, something like that. Mr. Rogers, Mother Teresa hybrid, something in that vein. This is the imagery that Jesus would evoke by saying Pharisee. So ignore that negative connotation that you've got. Ignore, ignore it entirely when, when you hear this term Pharisee. What we need to consider is what the Pharisee says and does here, right? He's a really great guy. Uh, but what he does, first of all, is he prays. He's off to a good start. But then it sort of takes a turn. Because we learn very quickly through what Jesus tells us, that his prayer misplaces trust in his own righteousness rather than rightly placing it on God. The Pharisee's prayer misplaces trust in his own righteousness rather than rightly placing it on God. Now what Jesus is not saying is that what's listed next is bad. That would be wrong for us to, to, to think that. When the Pharisee what Jesus is saying is this Pharisee is a goody two-shoes. What he's saying is like, these things are good. So the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I say and all that I get. He, the Pharisee is morally upright. This is good. He's financially honest. It's a good thing. He followed the right religious practices. He understood and sought justice. He was faithful to his wife. He fasted twice a week. He tithed, probably from his gross earnings. He was devout. These are all, these are all good. This, he, these are all good things. But the real, the real doozy in what, uh, what he says here is that the Pharisee even thanks God for producing this righteousness in him. Right away in verse 11, or halfway through verse 11. I, God, I thank you. He says, I thank you for the righteousness that's produced in him. 
He is saying that the righteousness that even he says God produced in him to be right with God. And he's trusting in it, which is ultimately his problem. His prayer misplaces trust in his righteousness rather than rightly placing it upon God. And so ultimately it would be lazy for us to look at the Pharisee here and say that Jesus wants us to think that he's a legalist. That's not what's happening. That's not what the Pharisee is. He's morally upright, a good thing. He's religiously devout, that's a good thing. The Pharisee gives credit to God for his moral uprightness. That makes him not a legalist. And and he gives credit to God for his religious devotion. That's a good thing. The Pharisee wasn't trying to earn his salvation through upholding the law. But rather, his error is that he was looking to the gift that God gave him rather than the giver himself. He was looking to the gift instead of the giver and placing his trust there. God's gift of righteousness is what the Pharisee trusts in. Not the God that gave him the grace to be morally upright and religiously devout. Again, this is the mistake of the Pharisee. He is making it, or the the mistake the, the, the Pharisee is making is that he is trusting what he is doing rather than trusting the God that has done. So cue the tax collector, and this is where Jesus goes next. He introduces us to the polar opposite of the Pharisee. We don't have tax collectors in our society, but tax collectors were, well, I mean, we kind of do, but the tax collector was hated in Jesus' time. If the Pharisee is the equivalent of Mr. Rogers, then the tax collector is the, the, uh, the, the sleazeball who's embezzling from the children's hospital. The tax collector also prays, He's off to a good start. But consider the contrast. It's a simple contrast. But he says, doesn't list anything. He just says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And even his posture is different. He keeps his eyes down and he beats his chest, which would indicate grief and mourning over sin. And so in Jesus' example, the tax collector prays properly because he places trust in God for justification. He places trust in God to be made right with God. He doesn't list any of his acts. He doesn't look anywhere internally. He only looks externally. So in conclusion, as we, I'm going to actually take a long time in the conclusion, so you're like, oh, we're getting out of here. No, you're not. (laughs) You guys, in conclusion, I want you to consider several things, and I've got four of them. The first thing I want you to consider is the question we asked at the outset. How am I made right with God? And this question is for everyone. It's not just for people who are not Christians. It's for people who are in Christ also. Again, the question that we could ask if, if it's a more biblical Uh, using more biblical language, is how am I justified before God? Again, the the Pharisee shows us that we are not justified by the self-righteousness, even when that righteousness is righteousness that God produces in us. The tax collector shows us that we are justified only by God's gracious activity 
on our behalf. And that gracious activity is the sacrifice of Christ. Through this sacrifice, the righteousness of Jesus is credited to you. It has to come outside of you. It is credited to you. This is that alien righteousness, the righteousness that's outside of you. Only the righteousness of Christ has the ability to justify you before God. It's credited, or to use the theological term, it's to imputed to you. You are clothed in it. You are covered fully in it. And therefore, you need, not, you need only to look outside of you, not inside of you. And the reason for all of this, the Bible is very clear, the reason for all of this, that it has to come from outside and not inside, is so that we would not boast, so that Jesus Christ would receive all of the glory. Uh, a passage that's familiar to you, uh, it comes up pretty regularly, is Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If, like the Pharisee, we trusted in the good works that God produced in us to be right with God, that would amount to salvation by works. But Paul in Ephesians 2 makes it clear that it isn't according to our works, but according to the grace of God that we are saved. So we must, like the tax collector, look entirely outside of ourselves for our justification before God. And the temptation for people who hear this is to say, well, then the righteousness that is produced in me is of no importance. And the answer to that is time and time again in Scripture, by no means. By no means. It is absolutely imperative, and it will be a fact for you that the righteousness that righteousness and good works will come as a result of your being in Christ. They just are not the basis for your justification. They are not the basis for you being right with God. Christ's righteousness is the basis for you being right with God. More on that in a moment. But then also, I want you to consider, secondly, the importance of humility. If you look at the summary statement, uh, the second half of verse 14, Jesus simply says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee exalts himself by bringing the focus onto himself. Again, even his list is a list of good things. That's not the problem. The list is that he brings the focus onto himself and says, These are the things that will make me right with God. That is the problem. The tax collector, on the other hand, humbles himself by keeping the focus away from himself. For those who are in Christ, humility starts with an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel. 
True humility is found when we begin to realize that our eternal destiny is not contained internally through some new agey journey of self-discovery, not just through staying true to ourself or being the best version of ourselves. True humility is found and lived when you begin to understand and believe that to be right with God, you must look entirely outside of yourself and onto Christ. This is where the Pharisee missteps and where the tax collector becomes our positive example. Trying to drum up humility without understanding the nature of the gospel will ultimately fall short. Drawing attention to your own virtue or something like virtue signaling, is a form of trusting your own righteousness for your salvation. Even if, like the Pharisee, you give credit to God for your good works. The third thing I want to say is a clarification, and I hit on it just a moment ago. But to use more theological language, we cannot confuse our sanctification with our justification. This is what the Pharisee does. He confuses his sanctification with his justification. Again, the Pharisee's error is that he looked looked at his good works and he trusted in himself that he was righteous. Jesus' audience does the same thing. Do not replace the righteousness that Jesus creates in you, this is sanctification, with the righteousness that Jesus has himself, which is the basis of for our justification. Jesus Christ is, he is our righteousness. And through that righteousness, we are made right with God. Through the righteousness of Christ only, we are made right with God. That's justification. And then, he creates in you righteousness, good works. That's sanctification. This is what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2.10 as a, at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 or after that text that we just looked at in Ephesians chapter 2. Right after verse 9, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that, we, uh, that God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. Walking in good works, walking in righteous deeds means growing in Christ-likeness and living in obedience to the commands of Christ. This, friends, is sanctification. And it is not to be trusted for our justification. The Pharisee trusted in his sanctification for his justification and went home not justified before God. On the other hand, the tax collector trusted in God for his justification and went home justified before God. And if you're thinking to yourself at this point, we're just all splitting hairs, consider what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 14. This is, everything hinges on this. It's vital. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. One man was right with God and would spend eternity in never-ending joy in God's presence. The other man was, at the time of this story, not justified. He was not right with God and was, at that moment, poised to spend eternity separated from God. 
And those to whom Jesus spoke, the ones who trusted of themselves, that are introduced to us in verse 9, those to whom Jesus spoke needed to repent and to look to God entirely for their salvation in order to be right with him. And so if you're here this morning and you're trusting in yourself and your own righteousness, if you're trusting in anything other than God himself, and maybe even you see those things, and God is the source of that, of your upstanding moral activity. But if you're trusting in your acts of righteousness to be right with God, if you think that your kindness towards others, or that your church attendance, or your Bible reading, or your healthy marriage, or your parenting techniques, or your clear-headed thinking in the midst of a pandemic, or your work ethic, or your saying no to drugs, if you're trusting anything except for Christ, to be right with God, you've confused sanctification for justification. And don't get me wrong, these things are good. Kindness, love for God's people in the local church, a desire to worship in the assembling of the local church, love for God's word, a healthy marriage, healthy parenting, reasonableness, hard work. All of these things and more will be produced in you if you are in Christ And they will give evidence, which is sanctification, will give evidence of your justification. They will give evidence that you are right before God, but they are not the source of your justification. So the final thing that I would say then this morning is this. I think this is the takeaway. Signal the virtue of Christ. Signal the virtue of Christ. Only through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice can we be right with God. Only through Jesus' death, his standing in for us, can we be right with God, can we be justified. Friends, would that be our first and best thought this week? Would that be our first and best thought? May we refuse to boast in anything but Christ. May we humble ourselves and may we exalt Christ above all else, for he is our righteousness. Let's pray.